Welcome to In the Arena, a show where entrepreneurs and leaders take us behind the headlines and into the biggest crises of their careers and lives and how they made it to the other side. I'm Jesse Janae, a startup founder and your host. Today, Eric and I have Martin Shkreli with us, a pharmaceutical company founder who was once labeled the most hated man in America. An enigmatic character also known in pop culture as the Pharma Bro, Martin has founded multiple ventures, testified in front of Congress, purchased the unreleased Wu-Tang album, and oh yeah, been to prison. It's just such a joy to sort of see people kind of persevere and get through their struggles, but you also see a lot of the bad side of humanity in prison, and it again gives you a good frame of reference for like who you are as a person and kind of where you fit in, in the, the, the sort of world. Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have a little bit of, of anger or resentment towards having had to go through it, but I also feel like this this could be an interesting setup for like a really interesting hero's journey yeah. of, of trying to like make things right and, and make a big comeback. It's fair to say he has lived through a crisis or two. Martin bears all by recounting for us the harrowing days at Turing Pharmaceuticals as the crushing reality of an indictment set in. Personally, I found some of the tiny details amidst the chaos, like concern for long-standing employees and the logistics of getting taken by authorities to be the most interesting. We are very lucky to have very special guest, Martin Shkreli, the man who needs no introduction. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Hey, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. We're going to drop you into a moment, uh, if you'll bear with us. And I'm guessing is a very, very difficult one. But if you if you could take us there, there's a moment where you are, you're running company and you're like a busy entrepreneur trying to do things out in the world. But then you find out that you are being indicted. And and if you if you will humor us, uh, instead of talking about the bigger implications of that, even though they're just huge implications, if you'll actually like try to give us that moment, like where were you? Like literally, were you with friends, not with friends? Uh, what'd you do right after? What are some of your thoughts? Like just to kind of make it f- feel real to us, like instead of this abstract concept. Yeah. So, you know, it was uh, really difficult. Uh, it was in December of 2015. I just sort of weathered, I felt like the Daraprim storm of raising the price of Daraprim in the summer of that year to a lot of like controversy and a lot of uh, pushback. You know, we basically decided not to back down to sort of steal ourselves and say, this is why we did this. We think it's the right thing to do for all stakeholders. And we we put our foot down, which was, you know, a very unusual sort of approach. And we had mostly weathered it. You know, the, the volume of media had dropped pretty dramatically. The revenue of the company was a little less than 100 million a year, which was pretty good uh, size private biotech company. And then we just acquired a publicly traded company. So we had a our own publicly traded company that was worth a few hundred million as well. And things were looking really good. You know, it looked like the Daraprim scenario or mess was hopefully going to be in the rearview mirror. And then uh, in December 2015, I just got back from a business trip in, in San Diego and uh, at 6 a.m. I was woken up by by federal agents, you know, fairly startling. You know, you don't um, fairly. Yes, it sounds, <laughs> fairly, it sounds extraordinarily startling. <laughs> yeah, um, that's not what you typically happens the next day after you come back from San Diego. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, I, I've been in a lot of crises and, and crazy moments in my life, so I feel like there's 
you know, nothing quite can prepare you for that. But I think that, you know, as an entrepreneur, there, there's, there's sort of a little bit of, uh, you're always on the edge of your seat and, and you've kind of seen it all, um, from, you know, missing payroll to, uh, having a vendor sue you or, or something like that. You know, when things go really south, which can happen sometimes, you know, you have to be able to sort of process it, compartmentalize it and react. And something as big as that is hard to, pretty hard to do, uh, that with. So you get woken up at 6am. I'm guessing you're woken up and that there's like some jet lag because 6am your time is 3am. So, so you're like literally just kind of recovering from a, from a business trip time-wise and sleep-wise, do you understand what's happening at the moment? Like how, luckily this exact life situation hasn't happened to me. So I'm just curious, like how much it actually, how many moments it takes to realize what is happening and how clear or not clear it is, because I can imagine actually just being legit confusing. Yeah. So, so about a year earlier, maybe 10 months earlier, a Bloomberg reporter who would end up being my girlfriend um, broke the story that <laughs> I, I was, uh, yeah, figure that. Um, I just talked to her the other day, broke the story that I was being uh, quote unquote investigated. And, you know, over time we've come to realize that, you know, basically the, the prosecutors kind of use the media to, to sort of, hmm. you know, leak, uh, you know, information. It's actually a crime, believe it or not, to leak a uh, grand jury testimony and grand jury proceedings. So it's, it's the, the person who charged me with the crime was committing a crime during that yeah. process anyway. And it's yeah. not a small crime. There have actually been people who have been um, indicted uh, for doing that. The uh, um, AG in Pennsylvania, I believe, was uh, sent to jail for, for doing exactly this, going to media and sort of opening an investigation, which they have wide purview to do. And yeah slipping to the media, hey, you know, do you know Eric's being investigated? You know, Jesse's being investigated. And then it's like, well, that's a pretty nasty story to, to wake up to. And so yep. it puts a lot of pressure on on the person who's being investigated. And it's basically pretext for for indictment as well. And we we just saw a pretty big indictment the other day um, of uh, historic proportions. So, you know, there, there's no doubt there's some politicization in, in some of the stuff. And so I kind of knew there was something brewing. Um, so yeah. it wasn't a total surprise to me in the sense that, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. You know, I, I hire lawyers, they spend millions of dollars to, to try to convince the government not to bring, you know, any charges or anything like that, how difficult it would be to mm -hmm. prove in court that I did something wrong, which it turned out to be very difficult. Um, I did win most of the uh, charges against me where I was acquitted of. And, you know, they still proceeded with it anyway. And I think there mm -hmm. was this, you know, I think we know the reasons for, for that to happen. But talking about my perspective, I, I kind of understood that they were kind of pulling the trigger on this indictment. Yeah. So at that point, because of the lead up, you know, that morning, it's still shocking, like, but, but you do actually understand what's happening because of the lead up. That, that makes sense. That's, that's not context I would have like normally thought through myself. And then I'm curious what it's like for your team and the company that you're running, because again, I think something that is kind of easily lost, but not on me thinking about what it's like to run a company is like, you're thinking there's some very real personal ramifications, but you're also like, you have a job and, and people who rely on you and there's like an all hands probably happening like within a week of that. I just, if you could help us understand that perspective of like what starts happening here, a company, what it's like with your team and things like that too, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. So obviously, you know, the first feeling for me was tremendous guilt. You know, I had, you know, around 300 people or so working for me to 250, that, that kind of neighborhood and, uh, working at our company, my colleagues, my co-founders and, uh, 
if you look at sort of the companies I've started, I, I foster these really close relationships with my coworkers. I really try to sort of make it clear that, you know, we're, we're a team, we're a family, we, we're, we're in this together to sort of prove everyone wrong. And the Daraprim controversy actually galvanized us even more. I think there were some people that weren't on board with the controversy, but it, it sort of brought us together as a team that we were going to fight this uh, together, and that it was unjust. And again, we had started to felt like we won. So this was like a, a tremendous disappointment. You know, there's a mix of reactions. I mean, there were some people that were mad at me too. You know, there was a lot of sympathy though as well. I think the biggest problem was we were, we had a publicly traded company, which, you know, mm-hmm. is, is, uh, you know, yeah. is, is really, really sort of a tough development for a publicly traded company to have their CEO arrested, um, fairly, you know, unprecedented. And, uh, for the privately traded company, I think, you know, restructuring kind of, you know, taking steps to sort of, uh, make changes is something that you can kind of recover com- from. I mean, I've always said that a CEO is just one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, most of the work of the company is done by everyone else. And the CEO's job is, is to lead and to try to get them, the team motivated, try to get the most productivity out of them. But the company, especially in biopharma, where the assets sort of speak for themselves, you know, it's mm-hmm. important to execute on those assets and make sure they, they, they are operated the right way. But it's very different from, say, software where, you know, there, there are things to do every single day. In biopharma, you kind of oftentimes are like waiting for the outcome of the trial. Mm-hmm. And a lot of pharmaceuticals sort of sell on like kind of like an automatic mode, like Daraprim had been used for 50 years. It wasn't about mm-hmm. to stop being used, you know, mm-hmm. so no matter kind of what you do, as long as it's available, it'll, it'll sort of sell. So in pharma's, the, the culture and the environment is quite a bit different from, from software where you're thinking about business expansion and you're thinking about new features and you're thinking about customer service and UI UX and, and all of these little changes you can make to your company. None of that really exists in pharma where mm-hmm. you, you may be planning the new deal, but you know, that, that's sort of, it's very much like a bolus, like impacts that come every now and then. So, but if you're publicly traded, it's, it's really tough because, you know, there, there's, there's stockholders that are trading your stock every day. There's yep. long-term stockholders that maybe just invested in your company where we just did a financing. So that was really uh, frustrating. It was like, are we going to cancel this financing? Are we going to try to give the money back? There, there was a number of a really terrible situation. So it's really like the worst possible thing that could happen <laughs> right. to an entrepreneur, right? right? Like you really could not. Like, yeah, like every bomb, it's like, just like you're imagining on a daily basis, what's the fire I'm going to discover today as an entrepreneur, just on a normal day, like what's the fire I'm going to have a cover. But on this day, it was just like, you open your eyes and it's just fire. Like <laughs> just everything. And, and it's interesting it's you like- say that because, you know, what I would have liked to have done is uh, been told that I was going to uh, be indicted because sure. sometimes they'll actually do that. And they won't do it if you're um, a violent criminal that might flee or something like that. That's not me. We, we had been in close communication with the government many times. So it's, it's really not like, you know, something that they, they could have just told us to surrender on Monday. And I, you know, gladly would have done that. I wouldn't have booked a flight to sure. somewhere, There's no, you know, and certainly they could have prepared for even that kind of eventuality. So self-surrendering uh, would have been the fair thing to do because I could have resigned um, mm-hmm. ahead of time. Right. Yeah. I could have sort of said, let me put some things into place to, to minimize the damage of this sort of mess. And I think the government in so many ways, um, you know, actually created 10 times the mess that, that could have been created, that, you know, could have been preserved. So our publicly traded company, like I said, went from about 200 million, uh, eventually to, to pretty much close to zero. Um, it dropped like 70 or 80% on the day of the arrest. And right then and there, you're talking about, you know, basically creating a several hundred million dollar loss for, you know, shareholders that are relatively innocent shareholders that 
just sort of expected to buy stock and maybe see it go up or see it go down, but not see somebody get arrested. And again, be, having, you know, resigning or something like that could have softened that blow quite a bit for those folks. And then, you know, again, the same thing for the privately held company. So it was really kind of like the government being a bull in the China shop, causing huge amounts of damage to all kinds of things, all for an arrest to prove uh, a fraud where nobody lost money, um, which is like a very, very, you know, nitpicking kind of crime, which, you know, was, was sort of the outcome of, of the, the trial that would take place a few years later. So really kind of like frustrating to sort of see that. But we, as entrepreneurs, we kind of see that all the time. We see regulators make decisions we don't agree with. We see uh, lawsuits don't go your way or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, an, an employee, X or current employee wants to be a whistleblower, even though you don't think you're doing anything wrong. Those kinds of things happen to entrepreneurs every day. Uh, this kind of stuff doesn't. But, you know, I think that it's it's one of these things where you could, you know, sort of chalk it up as another kind of unknown, unknown, unexpected development. Is your company resilient to something like that? And I was really proud of the company, the privately held company, which was fairly resilient to that kind of stuff because it had revenue, it had a pipeline. Mm-hmm. You know, the drug doesn't stop working because the CEO, right. you know, right. is, is uh, right. arrested. So, you know, you, you know, it's a decent question to ask entrepreneurs is, is your company resilient to you right. being arrested? <laughs> I'd say for most people, the answer yeah. might be no. Uh, but in things like SaaS or or pharma, pharma for sure, with with FDA approved products, the answer is probably yes. I mean, at the end of the day, could could they could somebody pluck you out of your business the and your business would be just fine? Yeah. Let me ask one more like nitpicking curiosity before we kind of zoom out a little bit. So you don't have this opportunity to pre do any actions, you know, which is sad. And I'll bring it to a human level, the, just based off guesswork. But there's plenty of people working at both those companies who are just in entry-level positions or like, you know, who are maybe have stock and are also very hurt by this, you know, just normal people are affected, you know, not not just you in a very real way. And of course, the shareholders. But because you don't have a time to pre-bake anything, what is the internal comms like? Like, is it, do you, is there like slack at these companies and is it like blowing up that day? Like make it real for us, like as though you're inside the company. Sure. So yeah. That day I was inside a cell. So, you know, I'm not really yeah. sure if, uh, you know, what happened on the slack, but the, uh, you know, the, um, joking aside, it, it was a traumatic day. I think there were people, you know, we had one executive who, who was very, very talented. Um, and he ended up starting his own company and doing really well with it. We had actually a number of people who did that and did really well. So I looked at my sort of crew and squad as, you know, pretty resilient sort of mini entrepreneurs themselves. I always want to find people that want to be a CEO, want to start their own company. Um, it's a lot better to hire people like that than people who, who aren't so driven and don't want to do anything um, really meaningful. So, you know, in, in biopharma, you know, each specific asset kind of has its own life and bringing these executives in who kind of want to champion an asset and push it forward is almost like having their own little company. But to answer the question, I feel like, you know, there, there were certainly people panicking. There were people who over the course of the day realized that, you know, this is one chapter of their life and and they, they'd find many more. So I was in charge of the, obviously the whole company, but really personally in charge of the, the business development and mergers and acquisitions and kind of, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, licensing team that sort of looked at opportunities to acquire companies or even acquire stock in companies. And so it was like uh, about a 10 person group that was sort of like a private equity fund in some ways. And virtually every single, I know what every single one of those people have gone on to do. And I'm, I'm really proud of every single one of them. Several of them became CEOs of their own startups. One of them sold one, awesome. sold two startups now, which is even, even crazier in that time. 
started and sold two different drug companies. I'm really proud of them. And many others are, are at top hedge funds and things like that. So in private equity. So I'm really happy for every one of those people that's landed really well. So I think that if you have a team of superstars, you know, there, there have been companies that have had catastrophic failures. I, I can think of hedge funds, for example, which are kind of in this notoriously difficult to uh, live space where I think on the top, I have some database, but of like the top 30 or 40 hedge funds to ever exist, I want to say a good half of them have been shut down for, mm -hmm. for bad reasons. Um, so, you know, we're at least have had Russians with, with, with law. So in places like that, you know, we're, we're kind of used to that trauma. I also was in hedge funds myself. So, you know, there's this sort of like, you know, expectation that you can just get up and, and go to another shop, uh, probably not unlike uh, venture, although venture doesn't have quite the same roller coasters of, of hedge funds. So I, I was really proud of those people. Certainly, we had the capital to sort of survive and shut down in an orderly way, whatever needed to be shut down or reduction in force or whatever. And so the publicly traded company actually kind of got a second life after this. It got a, another chance at uh, redemption for a COVID-19 drug. It didn't end up working out for them, but uh, the company uh, did a financing and sort of came back. And I didn't think, I don't think many people needed to be like go there. And then certainly in the, the main drug company that was private, you know, there was a restructuring, but it didn't have to happen that day. So I think I came to the office, I think the day after or a couple of days after and explained that I wasn't going to be the CEO anymore, uh, which was a really tough decision we should talk about as well. Uh, I somewhat regret that decision, somewhat don't probably, but I decided that, you know, I wouldn't be the CEO. You know, I would sort of take some time to focus on the case and, uh, I got a lot of support, you know, which was really, really nice. But, you know, I think there was still this, this, this issue where if you're being accused of something, and I think Nancy Pelosi did this the other day uh, with the Trump indictment, you know, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Uh, she said that Trump had a chance to prove his innocence in the court. And Twitter actually corrected uh, the statement with their community notes that said, Pelosi misspoke, you know, you're presumed innocent in the court of law until you're proven guilty, not the other way around. Of course, I think we know that's sort of a farce. And the speaker's comments, you know, are, are pretty clear that that is a farce that, you know, once you're indicted, you have a 97 plus percent chance of being convicted. So, you know, there is no escaping this kind of thing. You know, ultimately, I couldn't and didn't blame employees who said, oh, I didn't know Martin was a bad guy, you know, and mm -hmm. certainly after the Daraprim controversy, there was already this sort of like, okay, this guy's really taking our company in a weird direction. He's fighting the media. He's fighting the government. He's fighting all these folks that you're not supposed to fight with. That's the dogma, right? Don't don't pick a fight with uh, somebody that buys ink by the barrel and don't pick a fight with people that, that can arrest you. And, you know, once I, I sort of got arrested, you either felt one of two ways. You felt that, oh, this is a person who had been lying, cheating, and kind of been a scumbag all along. And the dare prim is evidence A and the arrest is evidence B. Or you felt that, that they were causal, that, okay, you, you dared to challenge the administration and the authority, and now you find yourself arrested for kind of somewhat spurious um, claims. Um, so I think, you know, whether you believed in column A or believed in column B, neither of them was were particularly good. Mm -hmm. But I was happy to have some people that were, you know, sort of, you know, by my side and, and wanted to stand by me. I still think there was a lot of frustration that, you know, you don't sign up for a job where, where one, the, the, the CEO gets into this massive fight with with the world at large, and then two gets arrested. That's that's a whole lot to take on as as a coworker. Yeah. And and if you could have gone back, would you have not done that? And and maybe say more to the audience who may not be familiar, what exactly you did do and what you got charged of, because 
you know, if, if you listen to very surface level, some of the media was saying, oh, you know, having this flawed narrative of Martin is raising drugs on, on you know, drug prices on sick people. So when you talk about what, what is the thing you were actually charged of and what do you think that you did or didn't do and uh, maybe reflect on, on those decisions? Yeah, I'll try to give as brief of an explanation as I can. Over the course of our careers in pharma, both as a hedge fund slash private equity uh, investor and then as an entrepreneur, we had uh, routinely bought drugs that drug companies didn't want anymore. And we raised, in essence, you know, to, to just be clear about it, we raised the prices of those drugs. Uh, we felt like we were normalizing the prices of those drugs, not that we were like, you know, rapaciously kind of trying to manipulate or, or extract some rent or something like that. If you look at medicines that, that cost sort of a normal price in the medicine world for a rare disease drug, it's, it's like a six-figure price. So we found drugs that were, were really underpriced. And, you know, it does sound like, you know, there's some something nefarious going on here. But the problem is that to actually have an FDA-approved medicine on the market, um, you often need uh, revenue <laughs> to support having that drug on the market. If you don't have the revenue, uh, the drug won't stay on the market. We've seen this time and again. We actually rescued a drug that was uh, abandoned by Big Pharma that the Big Pharma didn't understand that there were actually about 100 people who had an extremely rare condition called cerebrotendinous symptomatosis, which is fatal, that this drug was actually used for. They didn't know that because they're a big drug company. They got 100 drugs. What do they care? Mm -hmm. And so they abandoned the drug because the main drug, the, the main use of the drug was actually for gallstones. And they didn't know that there's this really, really small amount of people who are literally life dependent on this drug. But it was such a small seller that this big European drug company said, you know, it's, it's being discontinued as of this date. And, you know, the amount of people that, that take this medicine is 60. No joke, six zero in the United States. And so to, we calculated a price where it would make sense for us as a company to field the drug and for, for patients as well. And we actually would, would take patients out. It's only 60 patients. We met all the patients and, and met all the doctors treating those patients because it was a handful of people. And we explained what we were going to do, that, that this disease is so rare, it's so unknown, that having this revenue is sort of a source for our company to be able to not only make the drug in a reliable way, make it in a, because again, it was about to be discontinued. We then would rescue a second drug that was uh, in a manufacturing stock out. So imagine having this terrible disease. In this case, it was kidney stones, recurrent chronic kidney stones due to a genetic malformation. And you can't take your drug because the drug company forgot to like send a shipping order or they're missing a raw ingredient or something like that. And that happens if you also have a low-selling low drug. If you have a drug company with 20 drugs and drug 18 needs a manufacturing run and you somebody forgot or something like that or whatever, then, you know, it is what it is. It's not going to crush the company. But if it's your biggest drug, you don't forget, right? Mm -hmm. If it's your biggest product as a software company, you are on top of it. If it's like a product you haven't looked at in eight years and it's just kind of legacy then, yeah, okay, I didn't know the site was down for three days. Oh, well, how about that? And again, when you're when you're dealing with people's lives, the site can't go down. This this isn't you know pager duty. It's it's you need to make sure your drug uh, is available all the time for people who need it, and that that needs real money. And I think that you know there's this fear that you know a drug shouldn't cost more than X, or that how could somebody afford a several hundred thousand dollar drug? And you get all these like misconceptions about healthcare. They go into one big pot, and it, it feels very scary. You know the the rare disease world is is my specialty. And in the real rare disease world, when you have a drug that, that has dozens of patients, maybe low hundreds of patients, your price has to be so high to, to yeah. uh, recoup your investment, to recoup just having to do, uh, having an office, having regulatory people to talk to the FDA, having manufacturing, all that stuff's really expensive. And, and if your company isn't profitable, it's going to be really hard to sort of field the drug. And at Big Pharma, 
they can sort of subsidize these smaller drugs, but eventually they get sick of doing that. And, and a lot of these drugs like Daraprim had been passed around four different companies who all didn't want it. I heard you say something about that you can actually, you know, be prosecuted for not maximizing profits, like, a, you know, especially situations like you have shareholders, you have responsibility to two people for that. And I think that is, um, in thinking about running a company, I think that is something that can get lost here is like, who are you serving in, in this instance where you're running a business? And I, I don't know, I'd just love to hear you speak to that because as you talk about the subject, you actually have a job that you're supposed to be doing um, in this context, whether people like it or not. Yeah, and, and I, I'm getting a little off track too. So I, I want to make sure that you know I give you a good answer. But I was I remember when I was about uh, 19 or 20 years old and I, I was working at a hedge fund. I worked at a tiger cup called Intrepid and um, still close with the, the big boss there. This is neat. These sort of old days of Tiger um, when the Tiger Cubs are still rel relatively new. And I started buying up, uh, our funds started buying up uh, a percentage of this company that sold an antibiotic. And I urged the CEO of the company to raise the price. And he was this sort of French guy, a little bit of an aristocrat, kind of a very hands-off CEO, uh, super nice guy, but not really that dialed into the business. And I said, Monsieur, you know, you have to raise the price of this drug. And he said, nah, I don't want to price gouge anybody. This is not a good idea, et cetera, et cetera. And I pressed on him over and over again. I said, it's your duty to do it. One, because I'm a big shareholder and, and you, you have this really important asset that, that is very important to patients in hospitals and you're charging a low price. And he said, so what's the problem with that? I faxed him back in the day, <laughs> fax machines, I faxed him a, uh, a list of every antibiotic that's used in the hospital and their price. And I said, yours is on the bottom, as you can see. And it startled him. And I said, are you telling me that your drug is not valuable? That this isn't an important medicine? That this drug isn't worth what these other drugs are worth? And I pointed out to you know, other, other antibiotics. And said, this drug is just as valuable as those drugs. You deserve this revenue. And that is the speech that convinced him to raise the price of, of the drug. And that company went up to be uh, about a 10x, 20x return after they raised the price of the drug. There was very little, if any, arguments by anybody that it was a bad thing because that exact reasoning applied, right? That we were, they were paying for different IV drugs in the thousands and thousands of dollars. This drug is 60 bucks. And I was sitting there saying, you're saving somebody's life and it's $60 and you're a struggling company that had a mountain of debt. You know, you, you can raise the price to a fair price. It doesn't have to be the several thousand dollars your competitors are charging, but just, you know, double the price, you triple the mm -hmm. price. And that way you can afford to make your payroll. You can afford to do some R&D. You can afford to pay off some of that debt. And you can make me happy as a shareholder. And, and they finally sort of capitulated and did it. And it was, it was honestly the best thing they ever did because they would end up becoming a very successful company. They got bought out for $3 billion. It was a penny stock when we started. And they ended up uh, revolutionizing, the, revolutionizing the treatment of another disease called HAE, um, which may not have happened if it wasn't for me prodding and, and poking this company to, to sort of get the most that they could out of, out of this medicine they had. The drug ended up going generic and it's back down to even lower than $60. So there's kind of a, like a long-term benefit there if you're if you're sensitive about the price. The, the market yeah. corrects itself in pharma. So for me, raising drug prices wasn't something that was born out of greed. Um, at my second company, I never made a dollar in salary or in dividends. So to this day, that whole exercise um, has been for zero dollars. The whole dare from escapade made me not one penny. And I think that you know, if a drug company has resources, it probably should avoid price increases. But if a drug company doesn't have resources, mm -hmm. the VC window could be closed, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're, the, in biopharma VC, the world is not like tech. It is kind of a shit show in biopharma VC. And it's not easy to raise money uh, 
to do things necessarily. And the stock market's not always cooperative either. So sometimes you have to sort of make your own financing. And I think that this is, is one way to do it, especially if you're doing it in a fair way where you're bringing in the stakeholders, you're going to do R&D. A lot of these rare diseases, like the ones I mentioned, there's not been R&D in that disease for 20 years. So when we went to the doctors who were like the, the king KOLs of those, those diseases, they were thrilled. They were like, oh, wow, someone's paying attention to, yeah. to CTX or, or PCAN or, or uh, any of these weird illnesses that just, you know, there, there was one person, one doctor, I love to forget this, who was in New Jersey who said, I'm afraid to die. And I said, why is that? He said, there's not anybody who knows anything about CTX. He was a very old man. He was about 85. And he said, really, it was really a, a touching moment uh, where he said, I, I don't want to die because I know, you know, I'm 85 and I'm going to die at some point that who's going to take care of these 60 people that, that have this disease? Nobody knows about this disease. Nobody cares about it. And it was really touching. And I think it's, it's sort of on us to sort of say, well, let's sort of make this interesting for somebody. Let's give out a grant to learn about this mm -hmm. disease and things like that. So you know, you can kind of like take the little you know about pharma as an average person and say, oh, this is a bad guy. But then, you know, I come to the table with an amazing amount of knowledge about pharma. The New York Times said it was an encyclopedia of pharmaceuticals. And, you know, I love this industry. And and you have to sort of understand the, the vagaries of it to really make sense of, of what I did. It's kind of like watching, this is really arrogant to say, I, or be really careful here, but when yeah. I watch great chess players play, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't understand what they're doing yeah. and why, yeah. because I'm not a yeah. good chess player. Sure. So and, my, yeah. yeah, it's hard for me to sort of go to Kasparov and say, hmm, you know, I don't think that was a good move. Uh, <laughs> I would never do that because I know that he knows what he's doing. Now, you could argue that I don't know what I'm doing, but I do know a lot about pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yeah. So what's the crime? So you, you raise prices to make it sustainable to, to run a business, and thus you could get products that previously wouldn't be in people's hands otherwise. You get that. What's the crime? That's the theory. Uh, in, and again, we, we stood fast to it. You know, I don't think, you know, there was ever any like Bugatti or Lamborghini bought with, you know, these kinds of funds. We did spend a lot of money in research though. So years ago, I had a hedge fund and in my hedge fund, I misrepresented allegedly various things about the fund. We raised, it was a very small fund. We raised, I want to say around 8 million bucks and we returned over $20 million to investors. So it was a good return. Um, in fact, one investor testified that uh, there was no harm, no foul, and that he had been a lifelong investor in hedge funds, including Soros and Greenlight, many great funds. And he said it was the second best hedge fund he ever invested in, uh, return-wise. He said the bookkeeping was very bad. <laughs> you know, Martin was pretty sloppy about how he managed the fund. He said, but that's what he expected. It was a, he's, he's seen many of these types of mom-and-pop operations, two people in a Bloomberg type of hedge fund. And, you know, it was sort of part for the course to some extent. He said... It was, even though it was a, maybe the second best hedge fund uh, return he ever got, it was probably the second worst in bookkeeping. And, you know, I, I, I you second know, that's worst. Second worst is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, you know, that there's, there's no doubt that, you know, there was a period of crisis in my fund and there was stuff in it that I wish I had done differently. But I also felt like ultimately there's something called prosecutorial discretion where the government has to pick crimes that, Make sense it. to prosecute. And so, so they got you on a technicality. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm not proud of what I did. I don't think it rose to the level of a crime, but mm -hmm. I think that even if it did, you know, it's kind of a you need to have a victim, you know, in in a fraud. I, I also buy the argument that let's say I was pitching you to invest in my hedge fund, and I said I have really elaborate quantitative investing fund with with 50 computer programmers and all kinds of complex formulas. And you gave me a million bucks and I went to Vegas and, and flipped a coin on roulette wheel and it came up red and I picked red and I had two million bucks and I gave you back the two million. 
you know, technically I defrauded you. I told you this elaborate story to get your money, but all I did was really, you know, go flip a coin. And uh, is that is that a crime? Yeah, it's technically definitely a crime, you know, when, when it comes to, to the law and statutes. But is this somebody that should be prosecuted? And Bloomberg, not the woman I ended up dating, but another Bloomberg reporter said, if Martin Scully didn't lose anyone's money, then, then, then it was in their headline, then did he commit a crime? And one reporter, I think it might have been Matt Levine or one of these folks said, that it's basically like a financial joyride, you know, <laughs> if you stole somebody's car, brought it back uh, with a with the buffed and oil changed and like, you know, fixed up, you know, that that's that's kind of the crime. And I don't I wouldn't necessarily dispute that. Uh, you know, I was 20 something. I, you know, had a chip on my shoulder. I had been in hedge funds for a little bit. I wanted to start my own fund and be the, the big, big man on campus. And, you know, investing is really terribly hard. Uh, I teach a lot of investing on on uh, and talk about the market on YouTube. And it's, it's one of these things where you have to be really patient and really careful in being a great investor and being a good hedge fund operator are two very different things. You can be a very good investor, but actually not run a hedge fund the proper way, which, you know, I think firms like Citadel have, have shown that operational business excellence can lead to great outcomes and the return matters, but the return is just one part of the product. You want to have a lot of other things. So I didn't care about compliance or accounting or things like that. I just cared about the investments. And most of my clients were, were relatively satisfied, uh, if not ecstatic. Some of them have come back to me and said, can you can you manage my money again? And it's sort of like a uh, difficult thing to be labeled a fraudster or to go to jail over. Uh, but you know, I, I think that, like I said earlier, being an entrepreneur is about getting punched, <laughs> getting kicked, <laughs> and getting up again. And yeah. I, at that point, when we started Zoom out, Zoom out a little bit, when we started our first company called Vertrofen, which is now called Trevere, it's still on NASDAQ. It's a, it's a billion and a half or so dollar company. All the assets of Trevere were assets that I found uh, and me and my team found and, and created. We created this company from scratch and uh, we're really proud, proud of how big it's grown and how successful it's been. And when we started it, you know, it was it was this kind of thing where it was very really difficult to raise money. We were not marquee VC mm -hmm. people. I think it was like 25 when we started the company. And, you know, I, I was known as sort of somebody that knew something about pharma, but no operating experience, you know, no, nothing special. And, you know, raising that first $4 million was one of the hardest things in the world. Uh, we raised $50,000 from a dentist. We raised, you know, $100,000 from another friend. And it, I went to institutions. The reason I did this is I thought that my friends who, who owned and ran hedge funds would invest with me. And uh, they didn't. <laughs> so it was like really surprising and difficult to see people who I'd been trading with, shorting stocks together, making money together for years, pass on our, our deal. And I was just sort of like, you know, this is wild. Mm -hmm. People like Peter Thiel, uh, who was very supportive and, and other kind of more entrepreneurs and VC type folks that, that were interested. But I was, I was really hoping that the hedge fund crowd would, would uh, subsidize me, especially the people I knew. Over time, that ends up uh, what happens, you know, the hedge funds invested in our company and we did sort of a reverse merger, which is sort of like a SPAC, but without the cash. <laughs> and so we did a reverse merger and um, you can raise cash afterwards. And that's what we did. And uh, of all people, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's now running for president, was was our biggest backer. Wow. I didn't know Vivek from a hole in the wall. You know, all of my hedge fund friends passed on our deals. You know, we raised not only this, the first four million at a 20 million valuation, which we just picked out of a hat. We thought that sounded reasonable. As a publicly traded company, our valuation didn't really change and our stock didn't trade very much, but we found people who were interested in raising and uh, helping us raise 10 million. We raised 10 million. 
Then we raised 20 million. And then we did an, sort of an IPO. It's weird because yep. we we're already public, but we IPO'd a NASDAQ mm-hmm. uh, with 40 million. And that was a deal that was like 20X oversubscribed. And every hedge fund that passed on us, you know, in, in <laughs> Series A at a 20 million valuation really wanted to get in at two, a two or $300 million valuation, which is, you know, always like kind of funny that how that works. But, yeah. you know, that, that was sort of the entrepreneurial story. We found different assets that, that, drug companies didn't want or didn't like uh, anymore in their portfolio, didn't make sense for them. And what's funny is that these big pharmas like Pfizer or Merck, they'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars on these medicines or potential medicines and then say, nah, you know what, we're not going to, we're not going to develop this anymore. And that makes sense for that drug company. It doesn't make uh, sense for them to keep putting hundreds of millions of dollars into a drug. So we would often like scoop in, uh, swoop in and try to scoop it up for a million bucks or 2 million bucks. You were value investors. Yeah, definitely deep value investors. And, you know, it's kind of amazing because Bristol Myers, big drug company in New Jersey, gave up on a drug and we bought it for $2 million and it just got FDA approval a few few months ago. So it's kind of like Mm -hmm. our life's work. When I say us, I mean, it's certainly my life's work, but they're more than just me involved. And it's amazing to see this drug finally got approval. They were trying to get it approved for hypertension. We picked a different disease called focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, which is a very odd kidney disease. But it's actually a big kidney disease, believe it or not. It's one of the leading causes of, of uh, kidney failure and dialysis. So it got FDA approval, which like really touched my heart. And it's like uh, mm-hmm. very few people in pharma ever get to have the experience of taking a drug from the very beginning to the very end of FDA approval. And now people are writing prescriptions for this medicine that I named, that I uh, rescued from the Bristol-Myers cupboard. I have a question um, about the kind of entrepreneurial experience. Just th- this will be somewhat general, so uh, we'll zoom in. But... There's there's many kind of ethos coming out of like Silicon Valley, like move fast, break things, and uh, lots of money actually gets pumped into really young people. Like that's something I think about a lot. When we when we raised Series A at Lumi, I was probably mid or like mid to late twenties. So, but at the time, I felt old. Like like a lot of people I was meeting at dinners and stuff were like twenty two, and they're like, I just raised ten million dollars, and I would reflect like, wow, like on that, just on that fact, right? Um, just there's a lot a lot of moving pieces. Do you feel like some of that ethos coming out of Silicon Valley, like I would just reference move fast, break things. It's like people say that, but then do they really mean it? Because we're trying these things that don't always work or we make mistakes and they're like, you're totally allowed to make mistakes, but then you do. And they're like, you're going to prison. <laughs> um, so, so I don't know. I just curious your perspective because I always thought what's the worst that could happen, but you actually have like an actual example of like, well, let me tell you what the worst is. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, I'm glossing over a lot of the traditional uh, issues. So for example, we had this guy that we hired to be our CEO and we went to raise money and, you know, I felt like, you know, why should I be the CEO? I'll go find somebody to do it. And we found somebody who was like 60 years old really experienced. And we went to raise money and, and the person, for whatever reason, I guess, couldn't get investors to bite. So so the person uh, quit. And we're like, okay, well, I have to be the CEO now. And then I was able to raise the money and we went forward. And the problem is that this person harbored this, I guess, resentment throughout this mm. period that I didn't know about. I would end up learning about it later in emails. And so we mistakenly put this person on our board of directors. Mm, and I would end up actually hiring this person as our COO what I didn't know at the time, a COO is basically code word for, for CEO in waiting. Yeah. Um, and the person, <laughs> in essence, um, did a coup d'etat where, uh, you know, I, I lost, uh, in essence, my job, even though in my employment agreement, I could not be fired for any reason whatsoever. Um, I was still uh, asked to leave by the board. And it was very awkward 
because, you know, we had taken the stock from $3 to $20 and we had taken a company with no drugs to a company with two FDA approved drugs. We took a company with no drugs in clinical pipeline to several, and we took a company with two employees to a hundred and a NASDAQ listing. We, by all marks, done extremely well. And our shareholders liked me quite a bit, but the person saw this opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to become the CEO of a half a billion dollar, you know, uh, publicly traded drug company. And they took it. And the older board of directors went with that person, which was really, really crazy uh, because I was the largest stockholder. I own 20% of the company. So it was really like, you have a lot of nerve telling the founder, CEO, and by far the largest stockholder to, to step aside when they've and done so well. someone who's performed well. For yeah. me, I, I thought about fighting it, but I said, you know what, I'll just start another drug company. This is easy for me. I can find drug companies and uh, drug assets at these big pharma companies that have been sort of discarded. And now that's become a very popular trope in in biopharma, Vivek actually took the business model. We we kind of, we did pioneer it, but we we sort of did well with it. And he took it to a huge level and created this great company called Royvamp that's done very well. And I've seen a lot of other hedge fund people sort of dip their toes more aggressively into private equity since, and, and many who have done remarkably well, and I'm happy for all of them. But, you know, this this sort of old guard would come back and sort of get upset at our, at our New York team. For example, I promised our New York executives that if they found a drug that made the company hundreds of millions of dollars, that they wouldn't just be getting their salary, right? That, that we paid them millions of dollars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? If you make our stock go up by a billion dollars, I, I think the company owes you, you know, kind of a performance bonus yeah. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, at Merck or Pfizer, if you make the company a billion dollars, you maybe get a nice watch, you know, $20,000 bonus, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfair. You know, it should, mm -hmm. the reason hedge funds work so well, or at least I think they do, is this incentive mechanism. And so, you know, I started to pioneer this thing where we actually would give our scientists, our chemists, a 2% or 3% royalty on any drug they invented. And so if you invent a billion dollar drug, you'll be getting $20 million a year uh, mm -hmm. paycheck uh, every year for, for the life yeah, of the drug. No drug motivator. company does that. And for us, I mean, what's 2%? I mean, it's not a billion dollars we had yesterday. So, you right. know, it'd be amazing right. to be able to be a joy to write that check. But drug company CEOs that I met in private would say, Martin, there's a big problem with that. And I said, what's that? Uh, they'd be the largest paid, uh, highest paid employee at, at our big drug company. And that's not fair. I'm the highest paid employee at our drug Oh, interesting. That kind of arrogance didn't is even, like... It didn't even occur to me. That it, because I, I think often in startups, the CEO is not the highest paid employee. Like, because you realize that in order to get your company value up, you have like you have to pay people more than often you, the company is willing to stomach paying you. Yeah, I think that's the way it should be too. And I, I think that, you know, at in, in pharma, it's a lot older industry. There are very, very few people in their 20s who start pharma companies or biotech companies, whatever you want to call them. I'd say you're pretty young in biopharma at 40 to start mm -hmm. a company. Mm -hmm. And it's been a stodgy, slow, kind of, you know, not great business for, for partially for that reason. It's also a tougher business to, to get started in. You need a lot more capital. And I think there's kind of a reluctance from investors to to start a company off with 50 million bucks, that is just an idea. So it's, it's a bit of a different business, but you know, you still have a lot of those, like what happens when you take your little software startup and now you have a hundred million in revenue? Well, your board and, and other people are going to start asking questions. If you're the right CEO, the second something goes wrong, right? They're going to say, oh, this isn't a problem with our company. This is a problem with this person's use. With our CEO. Yeah. Okay. So you took a gamble knowing that you were in the right uh, legally. And you didn't end up getting uh, accused of that. They basically found some technicality from your past that, that, that they got you on. And perhaps part of the reason why they could do that is because you had kind of a brash uh, persona 
and maybe people were sympathetic to taking you down. Do you regret developing that persona or was that just kind of bad luck? How do you kind of reflect on your, your actions like separate from uh, what they accuse you of? Yeah, I, I guess it was to me like a challenge to to the the governmental system of like, are you really willing to go through with a petty kind of exercise uh, because it will promote you individually as prosecutors? A friend of mine is an attorney, a government attorney, and uh, he saw that one of my uh, prosecuting attorneys at a conference, and the first slide that she put up as her background was the person who prosecuted March Valley. And it's this kind of... Um, you know, and most of the people have from that team have been either they went to a big law firm with a big pay raise or they've gotten promoted within government. And so to me, it's it's like a very vicious thing that it's almost certain to me that a child sex offender probably didn't get prosecuted because somebody had to get my scalp. Yeah. Right. Think it's about gross. that for a second. You know, the government always says, you know, when you ask them, like, how do you pick which crimes to prosecute? They said we don't have the resources to prosecute every single crime. We have to sort of pick the ones that meet the ends of justice the most. And they have literally just stacks of FBI reports to go through. And, you know, they decide what what to pick. But a person who's on the cover of every business magazine or every, you know, whatever, that's somebody that, you know, may end up giving you a good career in politics. You know, the attorney general's office is a good example of basically an elected politician. Like trophy hunting. Yeah, it's trophy hunting. And and I think that, you know, it's, it's sort of a sad, you know, thing to do. And so my challenge was kind of like, well let's see how corrupt are you? And it was sort of like a stupid thing. Most people wouldn't play that game with their life. I had done this thing with my hedge fund, whether I liked it or not. And so for me, uh, when it came time for the Daraprim decision, do I cower, you know, in fear or do I sort of try to tackle, you know, my enemies and, and try to explain why I'm right? Because I actually, we, we did do a price increase years ago that started to get a little controversy. And I ended up going on Reddit and saying, listen, I'm, I'm here for anybody that thinks this is a problem call me, write your questions here, I'll answer them. And we, we successfully were able to completely turn the tide and help people see that that price increase was a necessary thing to do. And I figured we could do the same thing with, with Daraprim, that after I calmly explained it, everybody should understand. <laughs> and you know that, that was you know, a little bit foolish because you had, for the first time, people like Hillary Clinton or people like Bernie Sanders interested in, in, in this, uh, using this as mileage. So the challenge was really, uh, again, something that uh, doing it again, you know, it feels like if I knew that I wouldn't have gotten, say, indicted, you know, I probably would 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 have not been so brash. But if I had the uncertainty over again, I think I probably would still do the same thing. There's the brashness of the decision, but then there's the brashness of just your your media personality in general, which is you like you have a good sense of humor, you like to have fun, you could be you know trolling at times, and maybe that was just too much for certain people to take, or it was kind of, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think I, it, I somewhat contributed to the demise of, of sort of the trust in the media, because I think when people started to watch me on YouTube or, or understand who I was as a person, they started to say, oh, this guy's not so bad. You know, they're making him out to be the devil himself. And, you know, he's actually really does care about science and patients and stuff like that. And I have U.S. patents. Very few pharmaceutical CEOs ever have U.S. patents mm -hmm. granted to them. I've done actual research and made new drugs. Mm -hmm. There are very, very few people who can say the same and in that CEO level. And it's sort of like a very frustrating thing to have to go through the media picking on, let's say they picked a picture where I was wearing this like Lacoste popped collar thing right. with this funny watch. I was, it was an inside joke, but that happened to be my Twitter picture at the time of this whole scandal. 
So they called me the farmer bro for that reason. <laughs> and it, the name stuck. And I'm obviously not a frat bro or tech bro or something like that. I'm just some nerd. And uh, I actually started live streaming to help people understand that. And it's funny, a lot of the live stream comments were, where are the hookers? Where's the blow? Where's right, the, where's the like, bro? Where's the bro behavior? Yeah. <laughs> there was a quote from you that I loved from the Breakfast Club um, interview where you just say, I'm not about to change who I am ever. And I do find that very relatable, like my own entrepreneurial career, because it's like, I started out to do a certain thing. I want to do the thing. And as every bomb keeps kind of coming, uh, and I certainly didn't have the same type of grenades you you had, you know, I've got a goal, like don't get in my way. I don't know if that's how you felt, but I, I did love that quote. And I'm curious if that still resonates with you, or do you feel like you got beat down a bit through this process? This is the problem every founder has. You know, our, our company went from zero to a billion very quickly. And mm. most startups don't have that luxury but if you have that luxury, what ends up happening is there's a lot of pressure to change, right? And if you look at the CEO of, of any of the largest companies, they're very, very different from usually who, who the founder is. And if the CEO is still mm -hmm. in place, it's probably because they have voter shares. <laughs> like Mark Zuckerberg would have been 100%. fired a long time ago at a normal 100%. Facebook, right? Yeah. And you have some people who are, are miracles. They can do both. They can be the lying, you know, slick CEO that all of Wall Street likes or they can be the curmudgeon founder when they want to be. But most of the time, the curmudgeon founder doesn't survive on Wall Street, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That person um, looks one weird way at BlackRock and BlackRock says, no way, we got to get rid of this guy, you know, mm -hmm. or this gal. And, or, you know, some, someone like a, a board of directors member, the average age of the board directors right. in America of publicly traded companies is like 60 something, yeah. you know, ideas that they're retired and they have a lot of wisdom and, and stuff like that. But you know, there is some dynamism of youth that is totally, you know, uh, well-documented. I could easily see a board directors looking at Mark Zuckerberg for a senior vice president job at, at, at a company, a big tech company saying, well, you know, he didn't put in 10 years at Hewlett Packard or 10 years at IBM. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's just an insane, you know, kind of world that we live in where, where credentialism is, is often what takes place. So, that is probably the biggest sort of like challenge I've faced over the years that, you know, people... For example, we did something very different at our drug company where we used uh, a portion of our balance sheet to invest in other mm -hmm. companies. And we did this because we felt that, um, one, there was one company that had done this very, very well over the years called Berkshire Hathaway. They have proven that, you know, they, uh, <laughs> that, that this isn't such a bad idea. And the problem is that most people in, in biopharma don't really have a clue as to what the value of, of a stock is, which is kind of a problem because if, if, you, if your job is to buy other companies... You know, you should kind of be able to, to sort of discern whether that, that company is cheap or not, or at least somebody at your company should have that skill. And we've seen deals in biopharma that are pretty embarrassing, like Merck bought a company for $8 billion that they ended up shutting down or, or were basically yeah. writing off a couple, couple of months later because of a patent expiry that they didn't anticipate. That's brutal. And like I would expect my executives, when they buy a company for $100 million, that they're doing it because they think we're going to make $2 billion or something like that. Right. Yep. And so, and part of the, the reason to do the balance sheet experiment is to give practice to these, to these yep. executives. Okay, well, you know, maybe we don't have $100 million to buy a company, but can we put $2 million in this company and see if, if, if you're going to be right? In two years, we'll know whether you're going to be right or wrong. And then I can sort of deal with you accordingly, uh, either promote you and, and give you a bonus or fire you. And I think that that's... So, so you face some pushback for that? Yeah, I got a huge amount of pushback. So my board said, there, is a, there are no publicly traded companies that invest in other you know, companies as a, as a course of business. And I said, well, Berkshire Hathaway. And they said, well, that's different. You know? And I said, why? You know, why, why can't we do this? It's, it's, it's an amazingly productive thing. 
We have made several million, several million dollars already from our investment portfolio. It's been a really exciting and encouraging and engaging thing for our executives. There was virtually no risk. I mean, we, we had balance sheet much, much bigger than a couple million dollars. Yep. And, you know, it was just this kind of thing that was like, you know, a really positive thing around the company. And, and it was sort, sort of squashed because we, we have to do things the traditional way. And this is a time when pharma, you know, by the way, has not had great returns for the last, you know, 10 years. Mm-hmm. And a lot of pharma stocks have, have basically been the same price for a long time. So it was a really innovative new idea. And, and again, the board sort of people who didn't have any stock, they never put any money into the company. Uh, meanwhile, I had 20% of the company and, and they were sort of telling us what to do. So again, I, I regret not doing sort of a founder share arrangement to some extent, because I think that, you know, your vision as an entrepreneur can carry a long way, but I do think that never changing is something that it doesn't work well in, in the publicly traded world that we exist in today. Like eventually all CEOs tend to capitulate and become somebody else. Yeah. They become the PR consultants, you know, model citizen. They become the, yeah. sometimes the woke uh, citizen. Yeah. They become like this very weird thing because they want to survive all of the blows that could come their way. And that the person who renders their opinion is a liability. The person yeah. who has individual characteristics that are not the mean is a liability. A liability. Yeah. So fast forward to your indictment. You stepped down. You said you regretted stepping down. A little bit, yeah. So, you know, I look back sort of after I left private drug company, which is called Turing, you know, things didn't, weren't operated exactly the way I wanted. I owned a huge percentage, still own a huge percentage of, of Turing. And, you know, the business just didn't do great since then. And I feel like I probably couldn't put it on a little bit better footing and better management. So part of that is this kind of like regret situation more than anything else. You know, we didn't have like a, a pretty clear natural successor. So management was kind of bungled yep. for three years afterwards. If you're ever indicted as a CEO, you know, it's a pretty huge distraction. So I, I still feel feel like I did the right thing, which is not to be egotistical about it and just say, you know, defending yourself is, is something what, that... What, what were you thinking that your life was going to be like after that? So you mentioned 97% get convicted. So I assume you assume you're going to jail. Are you like, fuck, these people ruined my life? Are, are you like, no, I'm going to bounce back and build an even bigger, like, wh- what is your mindset after this? Yeah. I mean, there's, this is, this is a little hard to talk about because it requires like a huge amount of optimistic, egotistical kind of perspective, you know, given, given the success we had with the first company and the success we were having with the second slash third company, you know, I felt like we including, which isn't just me, but the people that I work with, uh, which are as important or more important, we had a, a special, a special talent. And that talent is basically so precious and it can't be taken away by anyone. It's something that just can't be killed. When you have that kind of a talent that then you really have no fear whatsoever. You know, your any company could collapse tomorrow and you'd start another one and it'll be successful. And there's there's just people that have that kind of like never say die, never give up kind of attitude. And it's kind of what makes them successful. I think like that most companies fail most startups fail because the the pressure, the psychological pressure that, that crushes the the CEO and the and the rest of the team. Our new software company, we haven't had a payroll in I want to say six or nine months, and that's that's really psychologically crushing. We just finally started to you know raise a lot of money. We had a lot of interest, but we had a a, a paperwork sort of issue where we had to tear up our whole first offering and do a whole new second offering. That was like a six month play. And, you know, for most people, that'd be, you find another job, right? Uh, but for us, we sort of said, all right, let's figure out a way to... For, for you personally, like when, when you're going to jail, are you ever like, 
fuck, my life's over. I should kill myself. <laughs> you know, not actually suicide, but like, what, when is your lowest? Like, well, I met some, I met somebody who did kill themselves, not after, just after they indicted. They got indicted. Oh. A hedge fund fellow who I used to oh my God. chat with. He was a, a pharmaceutical hedge fund trader and uh, he got indicted for insider trading. Not convicted, mind you, but indicted. And he, and he unfortunately committed suicide the next day. Oh my God. And it was really tragic. He left behind a, a very nice family. And the psychological stress of that crushed him so much. Like he didn't even wait until he figured out if he was going to be convicted or not or what the sentence would be. Right. Right. Those would be kind of more rational. But in psychology, we don't, we don't think about the rational. We think about the emotion. And, and uh, certainly it was crushing, Eric. I mean, it, you know, it was devastating. But I think that you also have to sort of be sober and say, okay, well, Martha Stewart did it. You know, Michael Milken did it, you know, <laughs> so forth and so forth. You're and just like thinking of Martha, 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 Martha. Yeah, please, Martha. <laughs> if she can come out and still teach us all how to bake cookies and we just think she's a fucking gem, then what, what's, you know, what's going to happen? And, and I think, you know, it also kind of your bringing, uh, whether you're from like a hard scrabble kind of background and stuff like that, like yeah. uh, we knew people who'd gone to jail, you know, somebody in our family had been in prison in our sort of distant relationships. I think half of America knows somebody who was or presently is incarcerated. So we've had an epidemic of kind of this like misprosecution. I hope the, the prosecution of the president, which is so unprecedented and say what you will about Trump. Yeah. I don't particularly love Donald Trump. Don't think he should be president again, but I don't think it's right to arrest a former president for the first right. time in 200 year history of our country. It really feels petty and stupid especially for such a silly crime. Yeah. So to me, like, you know, we, we do have an epidemic of criminal justice problems in our country uh, that specifically affects minorities. And it's, it's a tragedy that, you know, it's now become an important cause of mine. But ultimately, that aside, the challenges that come with now being a convicted felon, the challenges that now come with, you know, this public embarrassment and ridicule, you know, they're, they're real, but they're no different from the challenges other executives face. You know, I have pluses on my balance sheet. And I right. minuses. I just look at it as assets and liabilities. And I got some new liabilities, but I'm going to try to come up with some new assets. You know, I had been a pharmaceutical uh, person for 20 years and I followed pharma so closely. I knew that that business in and out, but I've also always had this tangential interest in software. And now my challenge is to see if I can learn software the way I learned pharmaceuticals. And it's not easy, but I can burnish the asset side of my balance sheet by showing people that I can be a software expert. I will try to be software expert and because you, you, can't, them, you can't do pharma anymore, right? So, so, you know, really funny story. Um, I was uh, uh, sued by the Federal Trade Commission. I'm the first person to ever be sued under the monopoly law. So the monopoly law, you probably remember from like high school or college or something was started yeah. in like 1895. It's called the Sherman Act. And <laughs> the Sherman Act was basically brought to stop one person called uh, John Rockefeller. And yeah. he had standard oil. And Standard Oil was like monopolizing all the oil. It would end up becoming like Exxon, uh, basically. But uh, people were really scared of, of John D. Rockefeller. They called him the, a robber baron. And this law came out to say, you know, monopolies are now illegal in America. And all told, it's probably a good law. And there have been many monopolies since then. AT&T, IBM, yeah. Microsoft were all accused of monopolism. Facebook. The funny thing is, though, nobody's ever been personally sued as monopolist. And what's the case there? Like what, what, what is, uh, so oil, you know, Facebook, I can understand, but for you, it's like, what's the layman's version of that case? Yeah. The argument is that we, we stopped generic drugs of Daraprim from entering the market. Of course they entered very quickly. So I'm not sure that we were that effective if, if we did, but regardless, we were convicted of that. Mm. We had a judge that really didn't seem to like me very much at all. 
and uh, we lost the case. And the, the penalty was that I'd be banned from pharmaceuticals for life, oh which has never, ever happened to a person. And it's always the company that gets sued because a person does not have monopoly power. A company has monopoly power. Right. You know, Microsoft sells Windows. Bill Gates doesn't sell Windows. Right. How can so, you have a monopoly? So this is the industry that you love, the industry you spent 20 years in, you're banned for, for life. And oh my God. How does yeah, that feel? So we can talk about the case, but but on a personal level, how does that feel? Because do, that- Do you want revenge? <laughs> it, it feels terrible. You know, it does. So I'm appealing the case. I think we'll win yeah. the appeal because it's just blatantly overreaching. Uh, again, Bill Gates was the enemy number one in 1994. He was my hero. Um, he was like the most hated man in America. <laughs> SNL made fun of his haircut. He was the monopolist bad guy that everybody hated. I loved him. And all my hacker <laughs> friends thought, you know, oh, Microsoft's the worst, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I like this evil empire. This guy's cool. And he spent the rest of his life trying to burnish his image of, of being this really ruthless business person that was really good at business. And Microsoft, you know, was one of the first trillion dollar companies. The point is the government did not like Mr. Gates and they still did not charge him personally, personally with yeah. monopoly because they knew how vacuous of a charge that would be. It still stuck with me. And again, the appeals court will throw this case out or, or, or the Supreme Court, but, uh, and I'm, I'm relatively confident in that, but th I still understand that there's, there's a serious risk that I've been banned from the pharmaceutical industry for life. And Again, is that a U.S. ban? Is that a foreign ban? Does that extend to pharmaceutical software? Does that extend to medical devices? It's all very unclear. But I think, again, when it comes to being a good entrepreneur, you know, one hand tied behind your back, you fight with the other hand. If you have two hands tied behind your back, you fight with your legs. You know, you have to find a way to win. And if people are giving you money, it's kind of like your sacred oath right. to defend that money with your life. And I think that what I don't like to see in Silicon Valley is when people sort of fail, which is natural, but they kind of embrace the failure to the point where it's like nonchalant. Like, yeah, it's almost flippant and like kind of gross where it's like you had a real job to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, to be flippant about it or to spend money on parties or like stuff yeah, like yeah. that, like you can party when, when, you, when you've raised 100 million and then, you know, you've, you've had a big milestone in revenue. But until then, you know, you have to put your head down and work as hard as humanly possible to, to get to the next point. And for us at Retrofin, this was like our... You know, we had this like, you know, win or die kind of attitude. And, and it was just work all the time, nonstop. If, if we feel like we've been successful, go back to work because we can't be too sure. And it was this attitude that, that would end up creating one of the best drug companies in, in that sort of era. But for, for software now, for me, you know, the challenge is the same. You know, find a way to stay motivated, find a way to stay engaged, work hard. It's a lot harder 20 years later. But, you know, get that energy from somewhere. When I was starting Retrofin, I, I would actually think about patients. Uh, mm. We were working on a treatment for muscular dystrophy. Kids with muscular dystrophy generally die at the age of 20. So for me, I thought about them. Every time I wanted to go out on a Saturday, I said, I know kids right now. Uh, we were friends with one family uh, whose son, Charlie, is MD, DMD. And I said, Charlie can't go out right now, right? Charlie may not be able to go out in 10 or 20 years. He's going to be dead. I have to work, you know, and, yeah. and fix this. And that was the source of motivation. So finding some well that you can draw on to, to motivate yourself to work hard is, is like one of the hardest things to do. Because if you're making a software startup that, that does, you know, you know, kind of some e-commerce thing or something like that, you may not feel the meaning <laughs> and purpose that, you know, yeah. we were able to withdraw for everyone's startup. It's like very hard to 
you know, go find that source of inspiration, that source of material. Just making money isn't enough, obviously. It's not, a, yeah. And and usually that's not the motivation when you really talk to an entrepreneur. It's not what started them. It's not what keeps them going. Being an entrepreneur is hard in general. What does it feel like being out there post-prison? Like you mentioned there's positives and negatives, but just to get straight to the point, you know, I know entrepreneurs who worry about their reputation after doing a layoff. <laughs> And so I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done a layoff and I was me like too. it kept me up at night. I was like what are people going to think about me because I'm laying off 20 people. You enlightened me about the other side. What is it like the good the bad? It's funny. I just did a photo with an entrepreneur, a well-known entrepreneur who put posted the photo on Twitter and then then deleted it. And I was oh. like, <laughs> oh come on. Dude, you know, you either yeah. you're happy to be, to be in a Which picture with it? me or you're not happy to be in a picture with me. And it's kind of like kind of watching that like yeah. I think people really liked my live streams after I got indicted or during or before because I showed this like fearlessness that that worked for a lot of people's personal kind of brand, if you will, or their personality. I did an Ivy League speaking tour where I got standing ovations because I think that what people don't want in life is to be put in a box. People don't want their personality truncated and crushed by the corporate world. And that's why we become entrepreneurs a lot of the times, right? We don't want to work at bureaucratic company X because it sucks. And, yeah. you know, you have to watch what you say, you have to watch what you do, and you might get your talents recognized by some haughty manager 10 years from now. That doesn't work for so much of, of the population. And so people saw me talk about stuff like that. They really found a kindred spirit. And what I'm really lucky about in today is that a lot of the people that watched my stuff years ago, some of them are billionaires now. You know, some mm -hmm. of them have some of the most successful uh, startups in, in whatever space they're in. And I'm really, really lucky that and proud of, of that community that's been created. One person told me the other day that the entire Goldman Sachs graduating class of analysts, you know, they have a training program every year, what were Shkreli fans and, and different, like, you know, big chunk of Bridgewater had like a Shkreli mm -hmm. fan club. You know, it's, it's one of these things that I'm really proud of. And to the extent I help motivate people and get them excited and interested in, in achievement at work and, and to be proud of their achievements and to sort of like try to strive for the best they can be. Every time I, I get down or, or think about like, you know, any of my negative situations, I remember one of my executives, our chief medical officer, who said, um, he, I'm so friendly with him. And he said, I tried to fire him like six times and he, he refused to quit. It was very funny. <laughs> we had this like love hate relationship. And uh, he was like, Martin's a son of a bitch to work for. I, I hate him. And he said, but I've achieved things that I never thought in my career I could achieve. I made things happen that, you know, I just didn't think I had it in me to, to do. And we, we did a lot of amazing things at that company. And again, we're still close friends. He wrote a letter of support to my judge. And for me, it was especially minorities and women uh, watching them take home their first million dollars in a soccer ad or something like that was the most exciting, you know, it'd like bring tears to my eyes because I'd be like seeing people that never thought they, sorry? Life-changing, yeah. Yeah, to, to, to watch somebody else kind of achieve their goal and their dream, mm -hmm. you know, is, is like, it's just so moving to me because... Uh, you know, the surprise that people have, like they didn't think they could ever do it or be in a position where they could do it. And they thank me, but I said, you know, it's really, you know, you did this. Uh, you just had a chance to do it. And, and that was, you know, always one of my, like talking about that well of inspiration. Can this person become, you know, something bigger than they, they ever thought they could? And, you know, I really just, you know, love that, that, that game. You know, I think in, in today's day and age, you know, a lot of those people from that world, that, that are aware of me in the business world, whether it's finance or software or pharmaceuticals, they sort of understand what happened. As soon as I got out, one, one very successful hedge fund manager reached out and said, I'm, I'm, I want to invest a million bucks in whatever you're doing. Wow. And, you know, it was very flattering. And there's been 
dozens of those types of people that reached out and said, you know, I, I, I support you whenever you're going to do next. I learned this from you, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the, the secondary effects of that are those people talk privately yeah. amongst others that, you know, I really kind of like that guy. Oh, oh, I do too. I just never thought I, I could say that. You know, I hear that conversation every day and it's, it's a little frustrating to, to, to hear and see, but I think that divide of like the media where people trust the media at an all-time low. People trust the government at an all-time low. Yeah. And sometimes I just get uh, some adulation just because I'm sort of ostensibly against those two things. People yeah, don't even know the, what I did or how I did it, but they just like the fact that there's a middle finger to those people. Yeah. It's yeah. the Rotten Tomatoes phenomenon of uh, yeah. the media, you know, might hate it, but other people like it. I mean, I, I think- I don't love that because it's kind of why Trump's popular, right? Um, yeah. You don't want it to be senseless. Like you want people to have an informed opinion on why to be for or against basically because- that's easier to respect and understand, but, but still it does make sense in our environment that some people are just like, I'm glad someone stood up to something a little bit. Establishment. You know, that's one of the reasons I, I did well in prison. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't talk about this a lot, but like there, there were a lot of people who, you know, wondered how I'd fare in prison. And, and it, it shocked me that when I went there, I, I saw people like starting to clap and like, you know, just feel like um, you're, you're the man. And, and I feel like, well, what's, what's, you know, why? And they said, cause you told them all to fuck themselves. And, you know, when you go to 97% of people are found guilty in, in the court of law, but almost all of them plead guilty. Mm-hmm. And you actually have this humiliating process where you have to, it's called an allocution, where you have to explain what you did and really cut off any arguments for your appeal. You have to waive your appeal rights and you just basically have to prostrate yourself before the court. And every person in jail, almost everybody had to go through this. I went to trial and, and fought. Uh, usually when you go to trial and fight, they give you like five times what here's what you're getting. You, you thought you might win? You thought you might win? Is that why you I fought? Didn't, and I win, I won five out of eight, which isn't still enough to go to jail, but the, you know, very rare that you win anything. So I was really, really proud of winning five out of eight because some of the worst charges were, were just kind of made up stuff and, and they were thrown out and it's hard to win spaghetti against the wall as well. Cause like you could yeah. defend only so much at, at, at any given time. So one of the charges kind of slipped through. I think if I could do those three again, I could win those too. Hmm. But there's just a machination of, of kind of the, the court system that's an embarrassment, in my opinion. You throw 34 charges at somebody. How are they going to defend every single one of those? A, a jury's right. going to think common sense, like ah, one of these has to be real, least, right? So yeah. you have to stay positive. And being an entrepreneur at 40, uh, which is old to a lot of Silicon Valley people, but you know, I'm still pretty pretty young in my mind and getting talent, um, hasn't been hard. You know, some of the great, great people have, have, you know, wanted to, um, join as kind of a mission based thing. And I think most people don't join on uh, startups for the pay, right? They think that's one of the most like misunderstood yeah. things. Clearly like the company generally can't afford as much as a bigger company, the benefits, the certainty, yeah. all that's not there. You're joining for the mission. And mm-hmm. of course you think a little bit about the opportunity, but I think most people who are really good join startups because they think uh, they believe in the mission and they want to really apply themselves. Same reason that somebody starts one. Are, are you like, I, I lost years of my life or you took away my third? Like, do you have a sense of, of revenge almost or like anger about it? Or are you like, hey, I learned a, a ton through this experience. I, I made the most out of my, my time in prison. W- what's your kind of like mindset? It's tough. I'd say it's both. I mean, I, unlike most people, I didn't feel like my time in prison was a waste. I read hundreds and hundreds of books. And uh, was able to learn a lot. So there are very few times where you can get away from a cell phone. In prison, it's illegal to have a cell phone. So you you don't have this thing attached to you. And you can actually sit and read a book, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is a joy. Uh, when you're a CEO or startup founder or whatever, you don't have time to read books. You know, mm-hmm. you might read a book a year or something like that. 
Uh, I think Bill Gates says he reads 14 books a week or some something like that. I think that's probably BS, but that's a lot of books. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed sort of catching up on things I didn't know. I got to do a little bit of work in in some academic disciplines that I, I sort of like forgot about a while back. Certainly learned a lot of history of, of say, the software industry and other fields. Learned a lot about, you know, things that I always wanted to know about. And, and it's prepared me for kind of reentry. I also got to learn about human nature. I got to reflect about myself quite a bit. I didn't want to spend four and a half years in prison. I would have, you know, much rather spend half the time or none of the time. But, you know, it's it's the cards you're dealt. I mean, sometimes there are people that I met people in prison who arguably did nothing wrong and got 25 years. And uh, my amazing uh, girlfriend at the time, Christy, she actually wrote a letter to get one of them out of prison. And he got an early release. He got 10 or 15 years off because of her work uh, doing that. So she did wow. these amazing feats. And I'm still very close with that guy. It's just such a joy to sort of see people kind of persevere and get through their struggles. But you also see a lot of the bad side of humanity in prison. And it, again, gives you a good frame of reference for like who you are as a person and kind of where you fit in, in the, the the sort of world. Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have a little bit of, of anger or resentment towards having to have, having had to go through it. But I also feel like this, this could be an interesting setup for like a really interesting hero's journey yeah. of, of trying to like make things right and, and make a big comeback. And you said you reflected on, on, on yourself. What did you realize you wanted to, to change or slash keep the same? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, the probably the, the, the biggest thing that I felt was that as much as I love being an entrepreneur, as much as I love making money, probably the most interesting thing to me is, is the sort of cutting edge of science and technology, which is always what motivated me as a child. You know, when I was a kid, I had this really good science education. And when I was 16, I was working for Jim Cramer and his hedge fund. I sort of showed that science education off and, and I basically got started looking at biotechnology stocks at 16 and 17. <laughs> and it was uh, really, really fun to do, but I also liked all kinds of other things. I was a, a programmer as a child as well. So what really got me going is that kind of very much bleeding edge science and technology world. And I sort of realized that no matter where I was, whether I was in prison or on a penthouse uh, in Manhattan or, or wherever, or growing up in Brooklyn as, as a relatively poor kid, the cutting edge of science and technology was so motivating uh, and so interesting. And you don't need a dollar to explore it, right? Like with the internet now, you can be on the cutting edge of science and technology, which is happens to also be a very valuable thing in, in the economic world and in the in- industrial world. But that that's sort of my joy. You know, I always like to say, like, I'd rather have a theorem named after me than have $100 billion. If I could choose tomorrow that I prove a twin prime conjecture or mm-hmm. some other famous math, uh, uncertain math proof, unsolved math proof than being the richest person in the world. I would take the math proof uh, every day, you know, uh, of the week and twice on Sunday, because I think that, you know, that permanence and that achievement is just means more to me than, you know, there are a lot of people who are very wealthy and not, not very smart. Um, and, uh, you know, I pri- sort of prize that accumulating wealth and compounding wealth, which in many ways is, is a, just a, a task of longevity <laughs> more than it's anything else, yeah. which hey, I'm not taking away anything from people who have made money and are proud of it. They should be. But for me personally, you know, I, I realized that my raison d'etre, my driving force is sort of this cutting edge of science and technology that I love exploring. 
and adding yeah. to the sum of kind of human achievement and knowledge, basically, which which I I do think at the at the root of most entrepreneurs, I really respect. There's there's that um, you know driving them forward more so than the gain. Your stories of resilience and basically just really staying focused on the things that do motivate you or even finding them in those really tough moments resonates a lot with me. And I think yeah. with any entrepreneur who's out there basically trying to do something right now. Yeah. Just, just to build on that, like put this in context, you're the son of a janitor, you know, a rags to riches story. Also, you know, uh, the amount of knowledge you've accumulated, you've been through the arena to use the show name in a number of different ways. You've been fired He's from been your own company. You've been in the arena. You, yeah. You've been, you've been fired from your own company that you started, that you're the biggest stockholder of. You, you had your reputation by the media dragged in the mud for millions of people listening to that media. You went to prison for four and a half years. Oh my God. And through it all, you've, you've bounced back. You, you've been courageous, you've been fearless, and you're, you know, you're set up for the next few decades. And still trying to build, still trying to build, like just actually making effort, which I, which most of us like try to wake up every morning, still trying to find motivation without all that other stuff you just mentioned. So. Yeah. I wouldn't be thrown in with lines again. I I love being in the (laughs) arena. So I think, uh, it's, it's, it's such a joy. Like we, uh, our company now is, uh, me and an old friend of mine who had been my partner many times and a younger kid, he's not a kid really, but he's 27. And we're just going through like some of these first milestones, like getting our first money in and he's doing these things a lot for the first time, but we're mm-hmm. sort of like, like, oh yeah, we know this feeling. It's exciting, yeah. you know, but the next milestone's coming too. And the dream is that of course, like any other company that we take it public or, or sell it or something like that in the long run. And we sort of have like me and my partner, Marek, we, we have these like milestones that we've created in our minds, like the first acquisition, right? The first big vendor agreement, the first big customer, the first, you know, law firm to rip us off on a bill, you know, <laughs> whatever, it came, whatever the case is, like we've, we've had these embedded experiences a hundred times over, but we've done it many times, but for like, to see our younger partners see it and go through it and do it, it's, it's such a joy. Like I said, our co-founder is a brilliant programmer who is also a bleeding edge technologist. And, you know, there's nothing more than I like to see, and this sounds so weird, but I'd like to see him make, you know, 50 or hundred million dollars, yeah. almost more than, than me. Because it's such a joy to watch people kind of, like I said, take this like crazy risk of like, yeah, I'll be a partner with this guy or, and, and that can yeah. be anybody. It doesn't have to be me. Just I'll be a partner with this crazy person that doesn't want to work at this really good job and instead wants to start their own business with no money and no bank account, no investors. And God only knows how we're going to do this. And it's such a crazy thing to want to do. You're the underdog. And, and to what, see that person win is so rewarding that it only ma- it basically makes the whole thing you know worth it because you get to watch this wild movie and you see the good guy win in the end and to me that's what entrepreneurism really means to me of course you win at the end too if you do it right you know the joy uh, is so so great uh, it's worth wrestling with a line or two in, in the coliseum let's uh, let's wrap that's on awesome. that inspiring note martin thanks Thank so much for coming so on the much. podcast Thank yeah, you. great awesome. talking to you Thanks for listening to In the Arena. If you enjoyed the conversation, please like, subscribe, and share by leaving us a review and telling everyone you know. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at inthearena underscore pod. We'd love your suggestions on who else has an intense experience to share. 